Welcome back to Drilled, Season 5, La Lucha Longla. When we left off, Chevron was strategizing some new ways to deal with the case in Ecuador. In September 2009, the company filed another international arbitration complaint against the government of Ecuador. This time, the Lago Agrio case was named directly. Chevron claimed that by virtue of letting the case continue in its courts, Ecuador was violating its bilateral investment treaty with the United States. Specifically, it argued that the case violated various contracts between Texaco and the government, like that 1998 contract that we keep hearing about, where the government signed off on Texaco's remediation work. That complaint and the tribunal's response has gone on to become a major part of Chevron's story about this case. So we're going to do something a little different today and do a bit of an explainer about international investment arbitration. Don't go! (laughs) This stuff sounds so boring, but I swear it's really, really interesting. And beyond that, it's, it's just important to know, especially if you care about environmental issues or climate change. In broad strokes, this system gives companies a certain amount of legal cover that they claim enables them to confidently invest in foreign countries. There are currently more than 2,600 preferential trade agreements. Those can be free trade agreements, bilateral investment treaties, all kinds of different things. Most of them provide access to the investment arbitration system. Here's how it works. When a so-called investor-state dispute arises, when a company wants to take government to task for something, companies can file formal complaints with international tribunals. There are a handful of these tribunals in the world and a few different sets of guidelines for how they work. Important to note here, companies can choose which tribunal to file with and which guidelines will govern the dispute. The tribunals pull together arbitral panels, generally consisting of three international law experts. These people are not judges, and the company that's complaining gets to pick one of them. The panels hear arguments and then decide whether the state in question has breached either a trade agreement or its own laws, and if so, the monetary value of that breach. In some cases, the proceedings and relevant documents are made public, but in others, as in the Chevron Ecuador case, They're kept completely secret. This system has been getting used more and more by companies that want to punish countries for passing environmental regulation. Just this month, a report from the International Institute for Environment and Development highlighted how these investment treaties and the arbitration system might make climate action that much harder around the globe. Just think about it. Most of the world's coal plants and drilling sites are in countries that have signed on to agreements like these, which would enable fossil fuel companies to file complaints against governments whose emissions regulations interfere with their profits. Because so much of arbitral proceedings are kept secret, it wouldn't be a huge surprise if you've never heard of this, let alone how it works or how much influence the system has on global politics. So we called up Marcos Orellana, the expert we heard from last week, to guide us through the details. That conversation coming up right after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath 
of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to have you start with sort of a general kind of what is international arbitration and how how is it used by American companies? Sure, sure. At its core, international investment arbitration is a system that allows corporations to sue states for damages before panels of arbitrators. These days, uh, most arbitration cases are uh, brought under international treaties on investment protection. These instruments uh, typically grant corporations the right to claim compensation in cases where the government takes a measure that breaches the standards of protection in the treaty and that results in economic loss for the investor. Uh, arbitral tribunals are typically composed by three panelists. One of the panelists is uh, uh, appointed by uh, by the corporation, the claimant. The, the in theory, as, as the World Bank and capital exporting countries often argue, international investment arbitration helps foster economic development in de- in developing countries, and they it does so by building confidence in foreign investors. It's uh, it's argued that it is a tool to build confidence because foreign investors may be more inclined to do business in countries that may be unstable or risky if they have legal security in case something goes wrong. It is argued that these international financial flows, capital investments, does contribute to development because otherwise these countries would not receive this capital and would not benefit from um, the concessions, the works, the infrastructure, or the business from foreign investors. That's theory. In practice, however, corporations are using the arbitration system to discipline governments for their own interests. And this is often done at the expense of the public interest. How does this work or how does this happen? Well, in the arbitrations, corporations often argue that their expectations for profit have been frustrated, that they have been frustrated by the government that adopts a law or a decision or a regulation, and they, the corporations demand to be compensated for the profits they expected to make. Uh, since arbitral awards can run up to tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and since even the legal fees involved uh, the council and the costs of the arbitration it can run into the millions of dollars 
this puts a lot of pressure on government officials to uh, pass, to adopt, uh, or even maintain public interest uh, measures. Let's recall that, uh, that many of the respondent states in these cases, they have limited budgets. There might be small developing countries that are, that are facing uh, a set of priorities, competing priorities, and they have to struggle to satisfy health and education and at times food and water and environmental protection. And so talking about tens of millions of dollars of costs can really put um, a dent into the uh, budget of a, of a state. Um, so th those are the, the basic contours. The international investment arbitration can be described as a private system of adjudication that decides on, on the propriety of governmental measures, but it lacks the safeguards for accountability and transparency that characterize constitutional democracies governed by the rule of law. Uh, if we look back in time, in its origins, international investment arbitration came to replace colonial systems, uh, colonial systems of extraction, of, of domination. When, uh, when the former colonies acquired independence in, in the advent of decolonization, largely after the Second World War and the advent of the United Nations, the former imperial powers needed a legal system to protect the economic interests of their corporations. And international investment arbitration offered such an alternative. Uh, today, in this current day of age, many in civil society see the, uh, the arbitration regime as, uh, as yet another tool of corporate globalization. Uh, and this is because when governments regulate in the public interest, they become the targets of corporations that utilize the arbitration system to challenge those acts uh, of authority. Uh, I would uh, comment that um, this is particularly problematic in the age of climate change because uh, governments must reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases um, to face the climate emergency, the existential risks that flow from, uh, from climate change. And of course, this change in direction affects the expectations and the interests of the oil and gas, uh, of the oil and gas industry. Um, one, one last thing I'd comment on is, is the tension that um, in practice uh, arises between international investment arbitration and international human rights. And this is because international law has come to recognize how a clean and healthy environment is indispensable for the enjoyment of human rights. The investment arbitration system, however, puts an obstacle to the abilities of governments to take measures to transition to, towards sustainable development and to secure respect and protection of the fundamental right to live in a healthy environment. I'd love to have you maybe give an example of how, you know, how a company might use this to, for example, take a country to court over an environmental law that they don't like. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have like a good case example that you could share. Yeah, there, there are many examples of, uh, of uh, states uh, 
passing environmental laws and then being taken to court by by uh, corporations that are dissatisfied by by those laws. Um, uh, one example comes to mind concerns hazardous wastes in in Mexico. The, the so-called TechMed case it ex exemplifies the issues that arise in in these arbitrations. In in that case, the, the a hazardous waste confinement was located in uh, in the downtown uh, Hermosillo in, in Mexico and the government was concerned and the people around the confinement were concerned that uh, the tr trucks uh, going day and night in and out of the confinement with these hazardous wastes were posing a, a risk to, um, to the environment and to the health of, of the population. The company in question uh, began to enlarge the confinement without having the, the necessary permits. And uh, as a result, it was, uh, it was fined. It was, uh, the, there were proceedings by the administrative um, agencies in Mexico. And, and the government uh, began to study the possibility of moving this confinement uh, outside of the, of the of downtown area. Uh, laws were passed that required that uh, hazardous waste confinement be located from um, urban centers. And, uh, and the company, however, the negotiations with the company did not progress very far. Eventually, the government decided that it would not renew the concession for the operation of the hazardous waste confinement. And at that time, the company took the government to court, to the uh, arbitral system. And that's when the arbitrators uh, replace the role of, uh, of domestic courts uh, and begin to apply loosely defined treaty standards. They eventually considered that uh, the corporation had an expectation to make a profit out of its investment. It was a Spanish corporation, but that that profit had been frustrated by the measures that had been taken by the government to protect uh, the people around the confinement. should also comment that in that specific case, the, the community mobilized. They began to protest the, the trucks uh, the, against the uh, illegal expansion and, and so forth. And, and so the government was also giving expression to the uh, the concerns and the interests of of the people that uh, that were mobilizing, the the tribunal, however, considered that those protests could not be foreseen and that uh, they were uh, they did not have a scientific basis. There was no evidence that hazardous waste had indeed compromised the health of the population. And in so doing, then they, uh, they declared that Mexico was liable to pay the company millions of dollars for the measures it had taken. So this, again, goes to show how um, in a domestic court, the balancing of uh, the public health, the environmental issues, the human rights issues, would have received a different light than the unidirectional character of the arbitration that focuses on the corporation and whether the government's measure has frustrated its expectations. Okay, so I know that you are not 
involved in this Chevron Ecuador case, but as someone who, you know, knows this system well and has seen lots of different types of cases, I'm curious just when and if it popped up on your radar as a, an international arbitration kind of expert and, and what um, your thoughts are on that case in, in particular and how it kind of played out. This is a massive case. It's a massive case. Uh, the, the, the arbitration is just one of the uh, forums where this uh, case has been litigated. The arbitration itself spans thousands of pages, numerous awards and procedural decisions. Prior to the arbitration, there had been litigation in, in federal court in New York for nine years. There was also litigation in, in Lago Agrio in, in Ecuador and trial litigation, appellate court litigation, Supreme Court litigation uh, in Ecuador. The Ecuadorian Constitutional Court was also seized. There has been litigation in Argentina, Brazil, Canada, the Netherlands, the International Criminal Court received a, a letter as well. And there's still ongoing litigation by Chevron against the Plaintiff's Counsel in the United States. So that that's perhaps one first observation about how broad and how complex the massive, and it goes to show how difficult it is to hold a big oil company accountable for environmental harm. Chevron has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees. Those monies could have been used to prevent environmental harm or to clean up uh, the pollution. How does it compare to other cases? Well, w one thing I would notice that the arbitral system is opaque. It is known for its lack of transparency. This is a big problem because the arbitrations, as, uh, as we were discussing, they involve the public interest. They involve the scrutiny of public law measures. And so they should be heard under the safeguards of transparency and accountability that characterize uh, due process and the rule of law. But these arbitrations often are conducted behind closed doors without the public having access to the proceedings. That's, that being said, however, in some cases, high-profile cases involving environmental protection measures, the arbitrations have opened up and they have allowed for public hearings and they have allowed for the public to uh, present so-called amicus curiae briefs. This is a Latin term for a, a written brief that uh, presents a perspective that may not have been developed by the disputing parties and that is helpful for the tribunal to receive. In this case, however, in the, in the Chevron Ecuador case, hearings were held behind closed doors. Civil society was not allowed to intervene as amici. Uh, and from that angle, the outcome in favor of, of Chevron is, uh, is not surprising. But all that said, however, the outcome is surprising in some aspects. And one of the aspects that I think is, has um, to some degree startled a number of observers is the far-reaching character of, uh, of the awards. And this is because the, the arbitration system is often sold to policymakers and to, to the public as one of, uh, of simple compensation for loss. The bottom line, is, it is argued, is that if a foreign investor suffers economic harm 
because of something that the government did, then it should be compensated. And the example, the caricature even, that's often presented is uh, a corporation owns a mine that is uh, expropriated by a military junta that uh, gives the property to the to the the nephew of the general in power then of course the company should receive uh, compensation but that's not what's going on that's not what went on in this case and not generally what's going on in the field in this case the panel the arbitral panel crafted a range of remedies that go well beyond the issue of compensation uh, for loss it directed uh, Ecuador to preclude enforcement of the judgment of its national courts. Uh, so preclude enforcement, that shows how deep this system penetrates the sovereignty of the state. The, the panel also declared that Ecuador would be liable to Chevron for any recovery that uh, the plaintiffs in the Lago Agrio litigation managed to obtain. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if, 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 the, uh, if the Lago Agrio plaintiffs are able to enforce the judgment rendered by the Ecuadorian courts in some jurisdiction around the world where they can find Chevron's assets, Ecuador would be liable to Chevron for any recovery that the plaintiffs make. Wow. So, yeah, it is not just a, an award that uh, the, as typically the, the state has adopted measure X. This measure has caused Y harm and uh, the, we order, the tribunal orders the state to pay uh, $50 million to the company. That's not what's, what's happening here. So, so one of the things that this shows is that uh, international investment arbitration is not just about money. It is foremost about governance. Who takes decisions and for whom? Who benefits from those decisions? So in that sense, it is a system that removes the scrutiny of governmental measures from courts of law and places it in the hands of three arbitrators. In this specific case, one of the arbitrators uh, often sits in arbitral panels because he's appointed by corporations. Let's recall that uh, typically there are three arbitrators and the corporation, the foreign investor gets to appoint one of the arbitrators. So in that sense, it was no surprise that this person would favor Chevron's interest. The other two arbitrators, one, a commercial lawyer who, who recently passed away, and so may he rest in peace, and the other, an, an international law professor. So I think it's, it's fair that we can ask, can, can we expect two white males sitting thousands of miles away from the lands polluted by Texaco to appreciate the significance for the indigenous peoples that lived in those territories of the environmental destruction that Texaco caused in the 1970s in Ecuador. I think that their decision shows that they did not, they did not so appreciate the significance. That the arbitrators simply focused on Chevron and its narrative in disregard of the environmental and human rights calamity caused by Texaco and to be fair, Texaco and Petro Ecuador, I think that 
the, the disregard for this calamity shows the unidirectional character of the investment arbitration regime, a regime that focuses on the corporation's interests and its narrative and does not regard uh, the environment and, and, and human rights. Uh, perhaps I, I could uh, elaborate on an example to illustrate this point. Yeah, that would be great. And then I do want to have you talk about, you know, just how this undermines the Ecuadorian constitution and the right to a healthy environment. And I mean, like just in general, undermines countries' sovereignty. I mean, you've kind of made that point a, a few different ways already, but I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on um, the Ecuadorian constitution in particular. That is exactly one of the issues that uh, that the arbitral tribunal addressed. Now, in a in a democracy, one would expect uh, by design a constitutional question to be addressed by a constitutional court, but in this instance, there was an issue concerning uh, a contract between Texaco and the Ministry of Mines in representation of the government that raised this issue and, and the arbitration. So perhaps to, to step back, I think this is a good example. In one of their awards, the arbitrators set out to uh, interpret the right to a healthy environment in, the, uh, in Ecuador's constitution. Chevron argued that uh, it had been released from liability for collective claims under the right to a healthy environment by virtue of a release contract that had been concluded between Ecuador and Texaco. Texaco would carry out some remediation work in exchange of release for liability from the state and Petro Ecuador. Uh, but this, the scope of work in this contract was limited uh, this left sources, areas of contamination unremedied. There's evidence that indicates serious shortcomings in the remediation efforts that were actually carried out. Despite all this, in 1998, Ecuador approved Texaco's works and released it from liability related to contamination from the oil operations. So this is the, the contract and the release that uh, Chevron argued was at issue in this case and precluded the exercise of jurisdiction by Ecuadorian courts of claims concerning the collective dimensions of the right to a healthy environment. And so it asked the arbitral tribunal to declare so and declare that Ecuador, by allowing its courts to exercise jurisdiction, was violating the contract and the bilateral investment treaty between the United States and, uh, and Ecuador. The tribunal approached this and uh, despite the pollution was not cleaned up, uh, despite that environmental problems were not resolved, uh, the tribunal concluded that the contract between Ecuador and Texaco meant that Chevron could not be sued on the basis of the collective dimensions of the right to a healthy environment in the Ecuadorian constitution. <clears throat> the tribunal considered that the government could dispose and did in fact dispose of this constitutional right by a contract. Now, I would comment that uh, the tribunal's decision is not compatible. It doesn't comport with international human rights law or with constitutional law for that matter. This is a largely a commercial frame looking at contract law to approach 
what are public law issues of constitutional human rights uh, theory. A state cannot contract human rights away. Human rights are inalienable. They belong to humans. They belong to the people. The state cannot abrogate human rights, least of all by contract. The notion that a country and a corporation can, in a contract, deprive the people of a state from a basic human right can only be understood by reference to the arbitration as a system for advancing corporate interests at the expense of the rights of peoples. Yeah, wow. A, a footnote to, to that uh, analysis is that uh, in, the, in the litigation in Ecuador, after uh, Chevron was unsuccessful before the Supreme Court, it seized the Constitutional Court, the Ecuadorian Constitutional Court, arguing a denial of, uh, of due process and other constitutionally protected rights. And it was complaining about the exercise of jurisdiction by Ecuadorian courts. But the Constitutional Court plainly concluded that in a contract, the government cannot dispose of rights it does not have. The right to a healthy environment is a right of all persons subject to Ecuador's jurisdiction, the, the court uh, recent, uh, and the government cannot contract it away. What are some of the implications of this? Uh, one could comment that, um, that it was expedient, perhaps, to, for the tribunal to interpret the, the right to a healthy environment in Ecuador's constitution in a manner that, uh, that shielded uh, Chevron from liability, that released it from any claims. Otherwise, uh, the tribunal may have had to look at the environmental realities in Ecuador, the, the lack of remediation, the, the ongoing contamination, the fact that dirt was moved from pits, that certain pits that had been covered up are still leaking, that communities, many communities are still without adequate food, without adequate water, and so forth. Um, that is something that Chevron has worked very hard to avoid in this case. And I would say that Chevron has largely succeeded. It has largely succeeded in making this case story about um, the plaintiff's lawyers, about um, Stephen Donziger. But I, I think it's important not to forget what this case is, is really about. Uh, if, if we recall, the, the indigenous peoples in the Amazon, the Warani, the, the Kofan, other indigenous peoples, they lived in a pristine rainforest environment prior to the arrival of, uh, of Texaco and, and the oil boom in, in, in Ecuador in the 1960s and, and early 1970s. The extraction of oil by Texaco uh, and Petro-Ecuador was without regard to the protection of the environment. It was without regard to the rights of affected indigenous peoples. First operated by Texaco, as I mentioned, and then taken over by Petro-Ecuador, oil operations severely impacted indigenous peoples' traditional lands. The, the oil boom in Ecuador has imposed loss of life, health, territory, and culture. Indigenous peoples have not received reparation for the violation of their rights. The arbitral tribunal concluded this was beyond their mandate and therefore it was not their problem. It is not surprising. This is not surprising 
as uh, international investment arbitration focuses on on whether the government has wronged a corporation, but not on the environmental damage that may have been caused by that corporation. This imbalance is creating um, deficiencies in the international legal system, and this um, this award is a is an example of of that. Can you explain sort of what happens in in a case like this where the international arbitration panel is basically saying, you know. Ecuador, your courts uh, got it wrong. <laughs> like, who? I mean, I guess like who? And and there's like ongoing other, you know, um, legal proceedings happening. What's sort of the hierarchy there? How do those how do those things kind of intersect the the domestic court system? I guess in this case, both in Ecuador and the U.S. and this international panel. Yeah, traditionally in international uh, law, before a claim can be presented by a non-state actor to, uh, to an international tribunal, there needs to be exhaustion of domestic remedies. This is a term of art that means that uh, uh, a person or a corporation that feels that it has been wronged in order to present a claim first must go to national courts. And, uh, and give the state the opportunity to resolve problems before being confronted to an international claim. In investment arbitration, however, there is no requirement, at least not explicitly or typically, there are so many bilateral investment treaties, thousands of them, but typically they don't establish an exhaustion of domestic remedies requirement. What many of these treaties do establish is a, is a choice whereby the, the investor must choose whether to go the route of national courts or go the route of an investment arbitration. And investors usually choose, uh, they elect the investment arbitration route because they're as I mentioned earlier, they get to appoint one of the typically three arbitrators and they get to choose uh, which arbitral rules will govern the arbitration, which is also uh, relevant for the conduct of proceedings and, and the enforcement of, of any award. So that's a particularity in the field where corporations are able to do some forum shopping to advance claims in whichever forum, in whichever way, suits their interests best. So when corporations are well endowed uh, with resources and have the ability to hire scores of lawyers, they can really drown plaintiffs in, in litigation that is expensive in, in various forums. It, perhaps an example can illustrate it. A few years ago, Bechtel acquired a water concession in, in one of the poorest countries in, in, in Latin America, Bolivia, in the city of of Cochabamba and, and soon after taking over the, the water concession, it raised prices exponentially. It even began collecting water uh, fees from water taken from wells that had been constructed by communities. Uh, so the concession, it was expected that Bechtel would invest capital to increase coverage and secure uh, access to water, but instead uh, it began collecting uh, like very high fees for for water, and so there were 
water revolts, uh, so-called, the, the, in Cochabamba, the, the community mobilized, and eventually the government uh, decided that it had to take back the, uh, the utility. And at that time, Bechtel brought an arbitral lawsuit against Bolivia, but not as a U.S. corporation. It was under a Dutch-Bolivia bilateral investment treaty. So it, it claimed that it was a company from the Netherlands. And on that basis, uh, it could sue Bolivia. Uh, the tribunal sided with Bechtel and allowed the case to proceed. So how common are these... Um, Parallel legal proceedings, how common is form shopping? Quite common, unfortunately. Okay, and then I know that there are various kind of guidelines that govern these proceedings. Can you just t- talk a little bit about that? Like that, I-, I don't expect you to run down, you know, the specifics of, of all the different batches of rules, but h- how is it decided sort of which set of guidelines a, a tribunal is going to go with? And then what happens with the verdict in one of these arbitration cases? How, you know, is there an appeal process? Right, right. So if we compare the, the process with domestic courts, uh, the in domestic courts, there's, well, civil procedure or criminal procedure. There are laws that govern the process, and they provide all kinds of safeguards. The analogy in the arbitration system are the arbitral rules. Those arbitral rules are the, the rules that govern the process. Who gets to speak when, what are the authorities of the arbitrators, uh, and they also govern what happens at the end, the decision, the award, enforcement, and, and so forth. Uh, an underlying theme in international arbitration is the, the, the quest for finality. Uh, it is understood that the contending parties want to settle their dispute, and it is uh, expected that the award will be final. And so there's, there's no appeal uh, to uh, investment uh, decisions. Uh, again, the arbitral rules will govern the, the specifics. For example, under the, um, the, the Chevron Ecuador case, this was uh, heard under the, the rules of the UN Commission on International Trade Law. This is, uh, these are rules that have been designed for commercial disputes. Uh, not for the kind of denial of justice, which are public disputes, public law disputes. Uh, and so the, the issues of secrecy uh, in commercial disputes uh, may be warranted in those frames, but when it comes to public law, they're wholly inadequate. Uh, the ancestral rules, they rely on the New York Convention. There's a New York Convention for the enforcement, uh, for the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards. And that convention gives some authority to national courts in terms of recognition and and enforcement. But at the same time, that authority is very limited and and courts, they they usually give deference to the awards because of the need for finality. Uh, They can set aside, they can... um, strike down an award if there has been corruption, if if there is a clear violation of public policy, but for the most, national courts are quite reluctant to set aside or or strike down awards. Uh, So those are the procedural rules that uh, were applied in in this case. There are other sets of rules by the, the Paris 
International Chambers or or the World Bank's uh, investment facility. Uh, th those those rules, for example, the World Bank's, they exclude the, the, the it's a totally self-contained. They exclude the role of national courts. They provide for procedures for annulment in case, again, that uh, a party has not been heard or there has been corruption or, or, or so forth. But um, those procedures for annulment, they don't review the merits. They, they don't get into whether the decision is right or wrong, whether the law has been properly applied. They get into other, um, other causes or other situations that may affect the integrity of the process, but not the quality of, uh, of the decision. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, when, the, uh, when the investor receives a favorable award uh, under the New York Convention, uh, all states that are parties to that convention are required to honor that award. Um, and that, it, that means that, uh, that the, in practice that the Chevron uh, Ecuador Arbitral Award uh, directing Ecuador uh, to uh, make, to try to uh, avoid enforcement of uh, the decisions in a, of its national courts, that may have an influence in any country party to the New York Convention, any jurisdiction where the plaintiffs are trying to enforce that, uh, that judgment. Uh, so it may be at the end very hard for the for the plaintiffs to um, to collect damages on uh, on that decision. This is something that it seems to me like a corporation may not go after a European country or the U.S., but they're going after developing countries, countries in the global south. You know, countries with largely indigenous or brown or black populations. But yet, it's so it's it really is another form of colonialism. There's much much to be said about about that. Uh, in, in theory, the the, uh, the instruments are bilateral. There are some regional instruments as well, and um, and so they allow for uh, corporations from either country to sue the other country. And uh, so, for example. In the United States, Rwanda bilateral investment treaty, we have not seen any Rwandan corporation suing the United States, but we have seen Canadian corporations under the terms of um, the North American Free Trade Agreement suing the United States. They largely have not been successful. Um, uh, in in terms of European countries, um, there are. Uh, disputes between European states. Germany has been sued by Swedish corporations, for example, for uh, phasing out uh, coal and uh, nuclear energy and so forth. So their, their energy matrix, uh, this Vattenfall cases. Uh, Spain has been sued for um, certain benefits that it was no longer able to maintain after its economic crisis benefits that uh, had underlined the uh, the solar energy uh, industry so there are cases where uh, there have been disputes between industrialized states or cases brought against industrialized cases uh, states 
uh, I think what this goes to show is, is um, that there is some element of colonialism and north-south politics, but it's also, as I was saying earlier, many observers see here a corporate globalization where, where it doesn't matter if the state is, uh, is, is rich or poor or north or south, what matters is uh, for the system is whether the state is taking measures that may uh, affect the expected profits of a corporation. If it does so, it becomes the possible target of arbitral claims. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. It's created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. My co-reporter on this season is Karen Savage. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. The show's editorial consultant is Rekha Murthy. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Original score by B. Beeman. Special thanks to Larissa Ikeda, Trevor Gowan, and Emily Gertz. Our fact-checker is Wu Dan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton with the First Amendment Project. Our artwork for this season was created by the talented Matt Fleming. If you are a Patreon subscriber, thank you. Your money is helping to make this season. As a special thank you, we will be putting bonus content in the Patreon feed and also releasing episodes early there. If you're not a member and you want to support our work, please check out patreon.com slash drilled. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.